Tonight's reading is 1 Samuel chapter 24 to chapter 26, but we'll be skipping through a few verses, so I'll try to keep you on track. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. Verse 20. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Chapter 25. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. When David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal the message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water? and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers, and give it to men coming from who knows where. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, 
each of you strap on your sword. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife. Verse 18. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my lord sent. And now, my lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my lord be like Nabal. Verse 30. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or have having avenged himself. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Verse 38. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Chapter 26. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gabir and, and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Verse 5. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. Verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Or his time will come and he will die. Or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned 
Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. This is God's word. Let's pray as we uh, turn to God's word. Um, If we've not met before, my name is Phil. I'm the associate minister here. Father God, as we read uh, a story that's very distant from most of our experience, um, the life of a fugitive, of bloodshed and danger and wilderness. Our Father, we pray that you would show us our need to trust you and that you would teach us that like David, we can learn that you are a God who will do what he has promised. And so we pray that we would be a people who trust you to do your work. Amen. Well, imagine that uh, the perfect candidate for prime minister exists within the Tory party. I know, so quiet down. uh, But just imagine, and imagine further that you are the campaign manager for this perfect ideal candidate. Now, they are are spectacular. They're a mix of Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, all the best bits of Churchill, Mandela, Zelensky, and Queen Elizabeth, either or both of them even. I mean, this is just a phenomenal, fantastic, outstanding candidate, all of those put together, courageous, wise, economically astute, compassionate, servant-hearted, and dripping with integrity. But they're not doing very well in the early rounds of the leadership election. They don't have a Rishi's slick campaign or, or Penny's po- you know, popularity with the public. But they call you into their office one morning, clear out the rest of the staff, and they say, look, I've been handed a dodgy dossier. It's got smears that will just ruin all of the other candidates. None of the smears are true, but they are just brilliantly targeted, and it will take out every single one of my rivals. Look, the truth is, all the others are useless, and the country's facing terrible crisis, and unless I become PM, our country's in terrible trouble. What should I do? I mean, the smears aren't true, but at least it means I'll get to lead the country. How do you advise them? I hope instinctively we all know, no, 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 you you can't do that. If you compromise to get into power, you will compromise in power. If you use corrupt means, you will become corrupt. Now, this is the temptation that David faces in these chapters. Will he compromise to achieve a really good outcome? Okay, bring it back into this room. Uh, Forget leadership. Well, actually, I don't know. There could be a campaign manager for an MP. You're very welcome amongst us if you're here. But sorry if that wasn't helpful. But uh, what about you? When you face the temptation, which actually we all do, to do the right thing, but to do it in a a wrongful way, what do you do? Uh, Will you lie? If your lie will help get an abusive boss kicked out. I think for for Christians, there there can be particular ways we face that temptation. Uh, Sometimes we can be so keen that other people would become Christians that in the things we say to try and convince our friends and colleagues to, to put their trust in Jesus, do we, well, not quite tell the truth or the whole truth? 
Do we promise things God doesn't really promise? Do we go a little bit quiet on some of the, the difficulties? It's a, a specific example of actually a general thing, which is, will I trust God? Will I trust his ways? Or do I think, if you want to get results, <laughs> you've got to compromise. You, you have to disobey God just a little sometimes if you, if you want to do something worthwhile. And in these chapters, we're going to learn with David that when we're confident that God will do what is right, when we're confident God will do what he's promised, then we'll be able to trust him. And we will not ruin things. Now, we've been uh, working through uh, 1 Samuel, and we've seen how God has saved David, who is going to be king. And 1 Samuel really is the story of how does God bring the right king to his people. And for a start, for David to become king, God has had to save him from all manner of terrible dangers. As a young man, as a shepherd, he has been rescued from attacks by lions and bears. He's survived one-on-one combat with the Philistine giant, Goliath. He's survived countless battles with the Philistine armies. He survived attacks from Saul's assassins. He's survived Saul himself throwing spears at him. He's survived being discovered alone in the capital city of his enemies. He survived keeping 600 people safe in the wilderness while they're pursued as fugitives. But at the heart of these, cha- these chapters, God saves David from the greatest threat that David faces. God saves David from David. God saves him from the sinful temptation to take vengeance himself rather than trust God will judge. He saves him from the urge to grab the kingdom God has promised rather than wait for God to give it to him. Now, we're, we're not doing these three chapters together because, frankly, it's almost the end of term. We just want to get one Samuel done. It, it's actually a carefully structured unit. I mean, you'll have seen in the reading. On the outside, you've got two chapters which are broadly similar about David sparing Saul's life, chapter 24 and chapter 26. And that focuses our attention on the middle chapter, chapter 25, which is very carefully structured. You can can sort of see the A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A pattern. Um, And if you read through it, you've got it on your, uh, you can see it probably on the screen. I won't take time on it. But it focuses our attention on the central section as Abigail speaks to David in verses 20 to 35 of chapter 25. That's the heart of it. As Abigail teaches David... Trust God rather than take justice in your own hands. Or to put it more broadly, David, the ends do not justify the means. God's work must be done in God's ways. You can see how important the lesson is from the sheer amount of space that's devoted to it. And we'll spend a little bit of time at the end just thinking practically how this applies to us. But we will also see that in David's temptation in the wilderness here, there is a shadow, an echo of another king and his temptations in the wilderness that lead to our salvation. Right, let's, uh, let's plow on. Um, we've got a lot to work through. Let's, uh, let's get moving. So firstly, chapter 24, the kingdom is God's to give, not David's to take. So turn back to chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David's in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there. So you've got 3,000 
elite troops chosen by Saul, hunting for the man chosen by God. But even kings on serious military missions every now and then have to answer the call of nature. So Saul slips into a cave. But what a cave to choose. Verse 3 carries on. Saul went in to relieve himself, and David and his men were far back in the cave. Oops. It's not just embarrassing. It's dangerous. David's 600 men are waiting in the back of the cave. Now, I've got to be honest, I've read the whole Bible a number of times, and bowel movements aren't a major theme in the Bible. But they are mentioned in one other place. And in fact, the same language is used, and that's in Judges 3. And there we read about an oppressive, wicked king, Eglon of Moab, who goes and relieves himself in an inner room and is killed by Ehud, the left-handed judge that God raises up. The parallel is not lost on David's men, as you can see from verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. God never actually said that, but, you know, we're kind of paraphrasing. God just said, you'll be king. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut a corner off Saul's garment. God's placed Saul at your mercy, David. Show no mercy. (laughs) But David won't do it. His response to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, verse 6. What he does do, though, is cut off a corner of the king's robe, which is both nothing and something. It's nothing in the sense that he cuts a corner off his robe rather than cutting his throat. And as David says to Saul when he emerges from the cave, look, you know I can't mean you any wrong. I could have killed you and I didn't. All I did was chop off a bit of your clothing. It's nothing. But it is also something. It is very symbolic. Back in chapter 15, verse 27 and 28, Saul grabbed hold of Samuel, the prophet's robe, when Samuel rejected Saul on God's behalf and ripped his robe. And Samuel said, that is a symbol of God ripping away the kingdom from you and handing it to a man more worthy. Perhaps that's why David is so conscience-stricken when he cuts the, the robe off Saul. He knows it's, it's symbolic of taking the kingdom. But can you imagine the reaction of, of David's men when they realize not only is he sort of conscience-stricken that I, I probably shouldn't have cut his robe, that was a bad thing to do, Okay, well, you know, feel bad about it. We can, you know, form a trust circle and chat about it. Oh, no, he's going out of the cave. And David walks out. There are 3,000 men out there ready to kill them. And David runs out and cries out and falls before Saul. What on earth is David doing? (laughs) But his heart is driven by a desire to honor God rather than strategic calculations. And so he declares to Saul, having run out of the cave, verse 10, the day you have, this day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. He won't harm Saul, but he does call on God to judge. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Now, I wonder if Saul remembers the incident with Samuel and the ripped robe and the comment about the kingdom. 
Because it's striking, as Saul says, David, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. In all of that speech that follows, there's a striking comment that David, uh, Saul makes in verse 20. I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now, the central point of this chapter, there's lots we could comment on, but we haven't got time tonight. The central point is seen in the, the repetition three times Samuel is, uh, Saul is called the Lord's anointed. Three times David says, I will not lay my hands on Saul, the Lord's anointed. The kingdom is God's to give, not David's to take. David will reign, but God will determine the time and the place that that happens. God will bring an end to Saul's reign, not David. Okay, secondly, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And this is the key chapter, chapter 25. And what it shows us is David doesn't hold back from killing Saul because, you know, he's just a naturally passive kind of uh, a peacemaking, conciliatory kind of guy. Now, he's, he's the ancient equivalent of a special forces soldier. He spent the last five to ten years fighting relentless warfare against the Philistines, leading raiding parties. He has killed hundreds and hundreds of men. And as we find here, he is a hot-headed young warrior. No, it is God who keeps David from killing Saul. Let's see what happens. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. And his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. Now, verse 25 reveals a very key piece of information that would be lost on us otherwise in the English. That the name Nabal means fool. Literally, the Hebrew Nabal is fool. Now, in the Bible, fool is not a bit of a joke. Hey, hey, a fool. We're told Psalm 14.1, the fool states in his heart, there is no God. In other words, the fool is someone who arrogantly assumes, I can do what I like. Forget God. I do what I want. They think they can do what they want without consequence because they, whatever they say, they act as if God doesn't exist. And... Knowing that he is a surly man and mean in his dealings, we ought to be fearful for what response Nabal will issue as we read verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. This is a time when um, the wealth is gathered in. So he sent young men and said to them, Go to Nabal and Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and yours, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill treat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal the message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. It's clear from his insult, he knows exactly who David is because he knows the name of his father. The the servants' comments that we we covered in the reading to Abigail, his wife, showed that there there was some kind of informal arrangement that David and his men, they protected Nabal's shepherds and the flocks in the wilderness. It's not unreasonable then that having done that, that 
a very, very wealthy man like him should offer some recognition, some goodwill out of his abundance at shearing time. But Nabal decides instead he will respond with insults and with humiliation and shame to David's men. David responds swiftly and brutally, verse 13. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. You see how serious things are when you jump onto verse 22. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. A slaughter is inevitable, except for the swift, decisive action of Nabal's wife, Abigail. She prepares gifts of the food that her husband had refused David and heads out to meet his raiding party and falls on the ground before David. And her speech is wise, and it is actually very brave when you look at it. Verse 25, please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men, my Lord said, sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found among you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. See, in effect, she says, I failed to keep Nabal from his wicked folly but please, can I keep you from yours? It's a brave thing to say to a man with 400 armed soldiers beside him. The real punch, though, comes in the final two verses, verse 30. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. David sobers up from his red mist and realizes how grateful he should be to this wise woman. Verse 32, he's overcome really. Praise be to the Lord, the, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Three times in the text, we're told David has been kept from bloodshed. Now, sadly, when you read on into 2 Samuel, the following book, you see in horrid detail the misery and the wickedness that flows when the king does bring unjust bloodshed into the kingdom. But Abigail's wisdom and courage mean David will not ascend the throne with blood on his hands. Now, the story doesn't finish there. The next morning, Abigail tells a very hungover Nabal what has happened, and he receives the shock of his life. And then verse 38 tells us, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Now, what happens here really is what Paul urges us in Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. 
And thanks to Abigail, that is what happens. It's worth noting, isn't it, that this chapter does rather challenge some of our preconceptions about uh, the Bible and how God views women, especially in Old Testament times. You've got the greatest king in Israel's history, the man after God's own heart, but he needs to be confronted and corrected by a woman, Abigail. See how God values and uses women in his kingdom throughout the Old Testament. Now, as we saw um, when we were looking at this uh, in our topical series just recently, the the Bible does teach that churches should have uh, overall leadership of, by men, but it also shows in passages like this, no male leader should ever be above being questioned, challenged, and corrected by a woman. That's certainly true here. Okay, the final chapter. Saul will be judged by the Lord, not David. Chapter 26 is very similar to 24, but, but things have shifted. David is now on the front foot. He's now the one taking the initiative. And the echoes of chapter 25 should be ringing in our ears as we go through this chapter. Verse 1, the Ziphites, again, they are like the class snitches. They're always telling teacher, except it's a bit more serious when it's telling Saul so he can come and kill David. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search for David. David's response is much more proactive. He's no longer hiding. He sends out scouts. It's, it's almost as if he's hunting Saul. Verse 4, he sent out scouts and learns that Saul had definitely arrived. What he does next is so brave as to appear absolutely mad. He decides he's going to sneak into Saul's camp at night with Abishai. Apparently, it seems Saul is so certain that David is on the run and hiding, he doesn't even bother posting sentries. But you can imagine the tension as David and Abishai pick their way carefully through the snoring bodies and make their way to the middle of the camp where a distinctive spear is jabbed in the ground and beside it sleeps King Saul. What could be more appropriate? What could be more symbolic than for David to take the throne by taking the spear that Saul had three times thrown at David and ending Saul's life with it. Abishai is in absolutely no doubt about what should be done. Verse 8, Abishai said to David, Today God has given your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But where Abishai sees an opportunity, David recognizes his temptation. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. I will not. You do wonder. I'm not sure it's really the place to be having an argument. You're in the middle of a camp of 3,000 enemy soldiers. Sort out what you're going to do before you get in there. But, but still, David has learned the lesson that Abigail taught him in the previous chapter. He will not ascend to the throne with blood in his hands. He will not grab what God is not yet ready to give. He will not label what is actually a temptation to sin as a wonderful opportunity given by God. He won't achieve God's purposes through ungodly methods. So he takes the spear, he takes the water jug and slips silently out of the camp. Once he's a safe distance away, a loud shout rouses the slumbering troops and Saul recognizes the voice. 
as he snaps back to consciousness. Is that your, your voice, David, my son? Once again, David shows Saul, I have proved my innocence. I could have killed you and I didn't. Here's your spear. Once again, Saul recognizes his wrongdoing and promises not to do so again. But the, the key verse, the verse that should really leap out to us, is verse 21, after chapter 25. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Saul is the true Nabal, the fool who will be struck down by God. David restrains his hand from taking vengeance, for he has learned God will judge. It is a, it's a dramatic, dramatic account, this history. But what are the lessons for us? The Bible is a book about God, so what are the lessons for us about God? Well, first it points to Jesus. Like David before him, Jesus faced testing and temptation in the wilderness. Matthew records the final of the devil's three temptations for Jesus in, in chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's actually the same temptation David faces in these three chapters. Because Jesus has been promised he will be the king of the universe. All will bow down before him. But not this way. He will become king of the universe through the horror and the misery and the shame and the agony of death on the cross. And Satan says, you don't need to do that. I'll give you everything if you just bow to me. Why go the hard way when there's an easy alternative? Here's the, the crown. No need for a cross. How about it, Jesus? Can you imagine how tempting that must have been? To know oh, I'm being, I will rule, but I'm being offered. I can have it now. No three years of loneliness, misunderstanding, poverty, homelessness, hunger, hostility, betrayal. No flogging, no spitting in the face, no brutal trial, no betrayal by my friends, no being nailed to a cross, no facing the wrath of God. Imagine how tempting that must have been. Imagine how tempting it must have been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three years pouring yourself out for these 12 disciples. One has already betrayed you, and the other's in your hour of need when you said, please, can you just pray? That's all you need to do. I'm not asking you to fight the Roman soldiers. Just please pray. And that's the best they can come up with. And as they lie there snoring while hell's gates open wide to receive you, the temptation for Jesus just to say, you know what? There's an easier way to get this crown. But he knew that the only way he could be crowned, not Lord of the universe, but Savior, as well as King, 
was if he endured the cross. The only way that you and I could be forgiven would be if he endured the agony, the misery, the betrayal. And so he trusted his father. He turned his back again on Satan's temptations. And he went to the cross. And then, and then, having been to hell, having suffered the wrath of God, having died and been buried, and then he was crowned in glory as he rose from the grave, the king of the universe and the savior of all God's people. But it's only by doing God's work in God's way that he could become the savior king rather than just the fearsome judge. There are also ways that we face this temptation. Just as we close, two things. Firstly, don't mistake temptations for opportunities. Do you notice throughout this passage, there are people who think they can see what God is doing. God's delivered Saul into your hands. Kill him. God's given us Saul right here, and there's a spear. Kill him. It's too unlikely a coincidence that of all the caves, Saul would pick this one. I mean, clearly this is God delivering him to you. So easy to mistake a temptation to sin for an opportunity presented by God. Remember a conversation years back, somebody justifying the beginning of an affair. Could see what was happening. Said, Don't do it. Said, I didn't ask to work with this girl. My marriage was a mistake and it's been miserable for ages. And this just feels like, like God has answered my prayers. She is so perfect. I actually look forward to going to work. And it's not me that, that sort of arranged this project such that we work together all the time. This just feels like God's blessing. Don't mistake a temptation for an opportunity, no matter how attractive the opportunity that falls into your lap. No matter how unlikely, no matter how much it feels like God's blessing, it is never an excuse to disobey God. Never. But do do God's work in God's way. There's a kind of broad application to Christian ministry here. If you hear of churches or ministries covering up wrongdoing or ignoring misbehavior and the reason given is to protect the work, that is saying the ends justify the means. Run a mile. It's a failure to trust God. It is to fail where David succeeded here and where Jesus obeyed. No, God's work must be done in God's way. And individually, I mentioned evangelism at the beginning. We know the gospel is true. Look, if you've been, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you've been dragged here tonight, thinking, what am I doing in a hot building on a Sunday evening being lectured about Jesus? Well, the reason is because he really is the only way to be saved from sin and to have eternal life. And your friend who dragged you here wants you to know that. And it's good and right they've done so. But sometimes we can be tempted to just water down the truth about, well, you won't have to change that much. We just don't want to quite admit the challenge of how radically we have to change our lives to follow Jesus. Or we find ourselves promising that God will make all sorts of things really good if you follow Jesus, because we think that people would be more likely to become Christians. Don't hide the truth about God. Don't change the truth about God. He has all the power. We just need to trust him. Trust God to save people by doing his work in his way. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception. We don't distort the word of God on the truth by setting forth the truth plainly. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in God's sight. But as we've seen again and again, the book of 1 Samuel is not a series of character studies. Be more like David, not Abishai. Be like Abigail. It's a book about God. And the key thing is, what is the truth about God that enables God's people to obey him? And the truth about God is the truth proclaimed by the human hero of this text, Abigail. The truth she states so graphically in in verse 29 of chapter 25, that God will establish the throne, David, and will fling away your enemies like stones from a slingshot. So trust God, David. You don't need to behave wickedly because you can trust God. Same for you and me. Trust God to grow his kingdom. You don't need to compromise. God has all the power necessary to grow his church in his way at his time and to convince people to put their trust in Jesus. Trust God to protect and provide as you follow him. Sin and and compromise might look like they deliver the kind of things you really need in the short term, but always they bring mess and misery in the end. Trust God. He will protect. He will provide. He will grow his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the, the wonderful message proclaimed by Abigail, that you are a God who will carry out all that he has promised. And so we pray we would learn to trust you, Lord. Help us, we pray, to do this, that you might be glorified in our lives. Deepen our trust, we pray. Amen.